morning, church. Pleased to be with you all this morning. This morning we're going to be covering all of Hebrews chapter 2. And if that seems like a lot to you, you're not the only one. When I told my father-in-law that I was going to be preaching in Hebrews chapter 2, he said, which passage? And I said, no, the whole thing. You should have seen the look on his face. Um, I think he genuinely hurts for me that I'm going to have to try to fit all of this into one sermon. And he's absolutely right. You could preach an entire sermon series just on this chapter. But I promise I'm not going to try to fit five sermons in one. The love feast food would be cold and everybody would be quite upset with me. So I'm going to do my best to try to boil this chapter down to what I think is the overarching point of the chapter. So with that being said, let's go ahead and jump in and read the entire chapter, Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, and because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word and I acknowledge that we need help. I need help to preach and we all need help to hear. Help us to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the authority of your word. God, remove any distractions from our minds, any preoccupations from our hearts that we might, for the next few minutes, hear what it is that you have to tell us. We pray that the Spirit would work, that it would work to rightly divide your word, that you might be glorified, and that Christ might be made much of. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I have a title for this sermon. And I think the title and the main point of the sermon are one and the same. The title is, Don't Neglect This Great Salvation. Don't Neglect This Great Salvation. So if you have, need one takeaway, that's it. Write it down and just kick back and relax. We see this point right in the beginning of this chapter. Verse 1, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Of course, we always have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? We know that it's pointing us back to something, so what is it? Well, let's briefly recap the, uh, the arguments from our first few sermons in the book of Hebrews, as that's going to set the table for what we're going to do here today. So, Pastor Mark did an excellent job and spent a sermon on the first few verses of chapter 1, where he established, among other things, that God sent his Son, and even spoke through his Son, who is himself God. And this very same Son created the world, sustains the world, and made purification for our sins. And then Tim preached two sermons on the rest of chapter 1, making the point that Jesus is better than angels. The original audience of the book of Hebrews thought pretty highly of angels. So saying that Jesus is better than angels was a big deal. But Tim went even further and he said, if Jesus is better than angels, then Jesus is better than everything. So when the author of Hebrews says at the beginning of chapter 2, therefore, that's what he's pointing back to. He's saying, I've already established who Jesus is and how great Jesus is. Therefore, because of Jesus' greatness, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. So what exactly is it that they've heard? What is the thing that they've been told to which they must pay close attention? We get the answer to that in verse 3. Great salvation. That's the answer. He's saying, pay closer attention to this great salvation, lest you drift. Look at the second half of verse 3. 
This great salvation was first declared by the Lord, by Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So it was proclaimed by Jesus and then by his followers. The book of Hebrews is believed to have been a sermon, and it's highly unlikely that the recipients of that sermon would have been eyewitnesses to Jesus himself. So think about that for a second. We got the gospel thousands of years later in the same way that they did. It was told to us by followers of Jesus. Snapchat, Twitter, the Associated Press, they've got absolutely nothing on the gospel. It, it's absolutely amazing how it spread the way that it did. Further, we see in verse 4 that the gospel, this great salvation that was originally proclaimed by Jesus and passed on by those who heard, was backed up by God the Father. How? By signs, wonders, miracles, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself performed miracles and signs and wonders, and so did the apostles. But the purpose of all of those things, all of the signs and wonders and miracles, was to point back to Jesus. Those things existed to bear witness to the truth of the gospel, to bear witness to the truth of this great salvation. And there's a whole sermon in and of itself about how signs and wonders and gifts are not an end unto themselves. Okay, what about verse 2? We skipped it. The point he's making is that this great salvation proclaimed by Jesus is better precisely because it was proclaimed by Jesus himself. Look at verse 2. The message declared by angels proved to be reliable. So again, he's not saying that angels are bad. He's just saying that Jesus is better. If Jesus is better than angels, then Jesus' message is better than the angels' message. What was the message of the angels he's referring to here? He's referring to the Old Testament law. The message declared by angels was reliable and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution. He's talking about the law. And you might be saying, the angels gave the law? I, I don't think so. I've seen the Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston went up the mountain. He talked to God. He came down with the stone tablets. Well, let's see if there's scriptural evidence for this. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 7 that yes, the law was put in place through the angels. And Stephen, in his beautiful sermon in Acts 7, in verse 53, he's lambasting the Jews and he calls them, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So yes, the law was mediated. It was given by angels. Of course, that's not his main point. What is he saying in verse 2? He's saying that the law that was revealed by the angels was reliable. Well, how so? The law condemns sin. Every transgression or disobedience received just retribution. The law did what it was supposed to do. The law was never intended to save. Here I want to echo the point that uh, Tim made. 
Christianity isn't primarily about religion or rules or even relationship. It's about revelation. One of my favorite theologians makes this point best. You might think I'm talking about John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards or maybe even Augustine. But no, I'm talking about the theological titan, Sally Lloyd-Jones, author of the Jesus Storybook Bible. So let's see what she had to say about Revelation. This is in the introduction. She says, Some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you, and it isn't mainly about what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. What God has done is embodied in Jesus and in the gospel that He preaches. The law, the rules, the religion, they show us our sin, but that is not good enough. Jesus is what God has done. It's not just that what Jesus has revealed is better. Jesus is the revelation. John 1 literally refers to Jesus as the Word of God. What did God reveal? He revealed His Son. And if you've never noticed before, <laughs> the Greek text, for a snippet of it for John 1, is right up there in the stained glass. Um, so He revealed His Son. The author of Hebrews is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, what angels had to say was fine. It was reliable. But if Jesus is much better than angels, how much more should we listen to Him? So the main point of the sermon is, do not neglect this great salvation. Consider this a sub-point. Do not neglect this great salvation because it comes directly from Jesus and it is Jesus. He goes on, first part of verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is a rhetorical question, folks. The answer to the question is, you won't. What the angels revealed, the law, it does a great job of showing us our sin, but it doesn't save us. Without Christ, we are without hope. Make no mistake about what he's saying here. He's not just saying that Jesus is better. He's saying that Jesus is the only way to God. This is new information that the author of Hebrews is giving us here. Jesus himself said it in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? That one's behind me too, in case you're wondering. The bottom centerpiece of stained glass. Um, like we should have just put the whole sermon up there. Um, Peter, standing before the Jewish council in Acts chapter 4 and in verse 12, he says to them, There is, no, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The theological term for this idea is Christian exclusivism. 
The idea that Jesus is the exclusive means of salvation, that he is the only way. It will come as no surprise to any of us that non-Christians will deny this. But I've heard even supposed Christians deny this. I've heard them say something like, well, Jesus may be the best way, but he's not the only way. Sure, Jesus is better than Muhammad or he's better than Buddha, but they're all right. You still get where you're trying to go in the end. Folks, this is a lie straight from the devil. It's so devious because on the one hand, it pays lip service to Jesus by saying that he is better. But on the other hand, it denies the fullness of who Scripture says Jesus is. If you neglect this great salvation, you are doomed. You are condemned. You are without hope. No one else can save you. There is no B-team option. So, sub-point number two. Don't neglect this great salvation because it is the only salvation. Moving on. I promise I won't... uh, spend as much time per verse on the rest of the chapter. The food really will get cold. Um, what is it exactly that makes this salvation so great? Okay, so the greatness of our salvation stems from the greatness of our, the founder of our salvation. We see this principle in the world. Apple, for example, the company, not the fruit. Lots of folks think that Apple is just not as good or as focused as they were under Steve Jobs, their famous founder. And no offense to his kids, but there's only one Billy Graham. You get the idea. The greatness of something often lies in the greatness of that thing's founder. Our salvation is no different. So, point number three. We should not neglect our salvation because our salvation's founder is great. Look with me in verses 5-9. through nine. We'll reread them here. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus will be in charge. Jesus will be running the show. The angels have a hand in it, how it's run now. The devil holds some sway over the affairs of the earth. But those days are numbered. Christ died and was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. His kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has yet to be consummated. Let me say that again. It's going to be important for the rest of the sermon. His kingdom has been inaugurated, 
but it has yet to be consummated. Verses 6 through 8 quote Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is pulling double duty here. When it says, what is man? This is referring to mankind. It's referring to all of us. But when we see son of man, we should immediately think of Jesus. Son of man is a messianic term, and Jesus often used it of himself. Verse 7 tells us that the Savior, the Messiah, will be lower than angels. And we see this again in verse 9. But wait a minute. (laughs) Haven't we spent weeks making the case that Jesus is greater than angels? Yeah. So how in the world are we going to say now that he's lower than angels? Well, there's an important qualifier here. It says, for a little while. He became lower than the angels for a little while by coming in the flesh. This is unquestionably the greatest thing about the founder of our salvation. He came in the flesh. We call this the incarnation. God himself came down, was born of a virgin, lived an entire perfect life, which we talked about this morning in CGG, um, pre-pubescent Jesus. It was an interesting uh, lesson. Um, Lived an entire perfect life, died a horrific death, and he was resurrected and ascended, ascended to the right hand of the Father. If anyone ever asks you what it is that is unique about Christianity, there are a few answers that you could give to that question, but this is definitely chief among them. The incarnation is a stumbling block for many, but it is essential to Christianity. I recently heard someone say, you know, I believe all that stuff about Jesus, but I don't really know. uh, Noah was trying to fit all these animals in a big boat, and how exactly did Moses part the Red Sea? And I'm thinking to myself, the animals in the boat? That's what you're hung up on? That's easy. The incarnation is mind blown. The incarnation is essential, and it is difficult, but it is absolutely true. Back to this idea of inauguration versus consummation. God's kingdom has been inaugurated by Jesus coming down, and in the future, when the kingdom is consummated, everything will be in subjection to Christ, which is why the verse says, not yet. Ironically, the very thing that inaugurated his kingdom was something he took on after becoming lower than the angels. Look at the end of verse 9. It says, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He's at the right hand of God now with honor and glory after having been made lower than the angels. Why? Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. The actor here is God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist. He mentions this here, the author of Hebrews, in stark contrast to to the idea that this person, the creator of the universe, God the Father, should send his own son to be made perfect through suffering. 
This gets back to the absurdity of the incarnation on its face. What do you mean that God found it fitting to perfect His Son through suffering? Was Christ lacking in some way that He needed to be made perfect? No, of course not. He is God. We are lacking. Christ suffered that many sons might be brought to glory. He was made a perfect Savior through His suffering, and that suffering was for our sake. Verse 11. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. He is human. We are human. He is the Son of God. We are sons and daughters of God. We can't make ourselves holy, but He who is holy makes us holy. Christ is the source of our holiness, so we are called siblings, and He is not ashamed to call us siblings. There's some question here about whether or not the one source that's being referred to that we share with Jesus, whether or not it's talking about humanity or whether or not it's talking about God the Father. I tend to think, given the context, that it's referring to our humanity. Jesus was able to be the perfect Savior because of His divinity, but plus His humanity. Either way you interpret it, whether the sources are shared humanity or shared Father, I think uh, the application is the same. Verse 11 again. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And now verses 12 and 13 saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and my children, God has given me. Verse 12 is quoting Psalm 22. When you hear Psalm 22, you should immediately think Jesus. And while the psalm was likely not understood to be about the Messiah before Jesus, the early church clearly identified it with Jesus. Why? <laughs> well, the main reason is Jesus quotes this psalm when he's on the cross. Remember, he's hanging on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus says this, he makes Psalm 22 messianic because he's the Messiah. When I was in college, uh, not long after I became a Christian, actually uh, mere weeks after I became a Christian, a preacher named Vodi Bakum, who I'm sure many of you have heard of, came to our campus for resurre Resurrection Week. He preached outside in uh, a really big area, a free speech area. Uh, it's probably a free speech broom closet at this point in 2017. Um, that's not in the notes. You get in trouble when you go off the notes. Um, but he preached in the free speech area, and he preached a sermon from Psalm 22. But he didn't say it was from Psalm 22 at first. So he preached a sermon about Jesus on the cross, and towards the end of the sermon, he said, and these passages were from Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus was born. This absolutely floored me. I didn't know my Bible. I didn't know any of it at that point, and it absolutely floored me, and it still does. He knew what he was doing. He was, he, I, was, I went to a state school, and he was preaching to an audience of folks who were completely biblically illiterate. Um, so he, he was baiting us, and he set us up, and it worked beautifully. 
But I don't doubt that the author of Hebrews here is doing something similarly clever. He knows that his audience, (laughs) unlike me and my classmates, will recognize Psalm 22 and identify it with Jesus, but he's using it to a different end. He's using it to identify Jesus' followers as family. He's saying, we are brothers and sisters of the Son of God, and by using Psalm 22, he's tying this brotherhood directly to Jesus. He's doing something similar in verse 13, where he quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 through 18. Isaiah is expressing his trust in the Lord and the hope that his family, and maybe even the remnant of Israel, should put in the Lord. The author of Hebrews is using this again to identify the faithful with our big brother, Jesus. We are all family. That's what he's saying here. (laughs) But when Isaiah commended the remnant of Israel to trust in the Lord, he was saying something very similar to what the church of Hebrews, to what the author of Hebrews is saying to the church here when he says, don't neglect your salvation. He's saying, hold fast. Verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. We're family. We share flesh and blood. Jesus must partake of the whole experience of humanity, including death. Think about this for a minute. God himself came and died. We're not talking about Abraham. We're not talking about Moses. We're not even talking about David. God Himself took on flesh and died. It's hard to reflect on 2,000 years removed from the resurrection. We know what happened. For a few dozen hours, though, it looked like all hope was lost. Jesus was dead, and it looked as if the devil may triumph. God himself died, but he was resurrected. We see here in Hebrews that Jesus' death destroyed the one that has the power of death, namely the devil. (laughs) But it did much more than that. Look at verse 15. His death delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Who is he talking about here? He's talking about all of us. Jesus' death freed us. By defeating his own death, Jesus defeated death for us all. Some of the Jews in Jesus' day believed in the resurrection. It wasn't a new concept. You guys might remember in Acts 23 when Paul was on trial before the council and he realizes that he has both Pharisees who believe in the resurrection and Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. He, he realizes that he has both groups in the audience and he brings up the resurrection to get them to start infighting. It's absolutely hilarious. So there were Jews in that day that believed in the resurrection. Jesus was the fulfillment 
of the hope of resurrection that they longed for. He is the great founder of our salvation. We are saved because His resurrection means we no longer have to fear death. Death no longer enslaves. Death no longer has the final word. But what about the devil? Verse 14 says that Jesus' death destroys the devil. Doesn't he seem pretty active for someone who's been destroyed? We see his work all around us. Evil, pain, suffering. Listen to the prayer list just from this small church. Suffering, disease. So what do we do with this? Well, this is another aspect of Jesus' kingdom having been inaugurated, but not yet consummated. Jesus' inauguration means that the devil is defamed. He can go around gumming people all day long, but he no longer has the power of death over those who are brothers and sisters of Jesus. Our big brother knocked the teeth out of the snake, and when his kingdom is consummated, he will crush his head finally. Verses 16 through 18. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Galatians 3 verse 7 tells us that all those of us who have faith in Jesus are the offspring of Abraham. Praise God that this promise is not just for Jews, but for any who put their faith in Christ. Remember, we're his brothers and sisters. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus had to be like us in every respect. To help us, he had to be like us. Why? To make propitiation or atonement for our sin. And that's what a high priest does. But Jesus wasn't like past high priests. Past high priests were sinners. Jesus never committed a sin. Past high priests shed the blood of animals to make atonement. Jesus offered up his own blood. So as a sacrifice, he was perfect. That perfection means no more sacrifices. Our sin is covered. But what does it mean in verse 18 that he has suffered when being tempted? Jesus was tempted. We know that. He knows what it's like to be us, to be human. You might object. But it wasn't really possible for Jesus to sin. So to say that he was tempted doesn't really mean that much. If you can't sin, then you can't really sympathize. I've heard people say something like this before, but it's not true. 
To say being tempted means that you have to sin is like saying that someone taking a test has to make mistakes in order to be a student. Isn't it possible to get a perfect score? Jack is in second grade and he regularly has spelling tests. If he were to come home and tell me that he made a perfect score on his spelling test, would it make any sense for me to respond to him and say, oh, you don't know what it's like to be a student because you got all the answers right? No, of course not. He studied the words for days, went in and took the test just like another student who maybe misspelled a word on the test. Jesus was tested in ways that we will never know. He endured trials in keeping with his humanity in general, just like the ones that we do. But he was also tempted in keeping with his messianic calling. If anyone was ever to have a big head, (laughs) it would have been Jesus. Imagine that temptation alone. We see this in Matthew 4 when the devil tempts Jesus. Matthew 4 verse 2 tells us that Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. You don't say. 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry? Do you think he was less hungry because he didn't give in to the devil's temptations to eat? No, of course not. He endured every temptation we could possibly imagine and then some. Hebrews 2.18 tells us that it's precisely because of this that he's able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to help you. He's able to help me. All of us, his little brothers and sisters in Christ. In closing... Let me say this, main point of the sermon, heed the words of Hebrews chapter 2. Don't neglect this great salvation. Without Jesus, we all stand condemned. This salvation that comes directly from Jesus is necessary and it's exclusive. It came at a great cost, and it came from a great founder. He did what we could not do, but he sympathizes with our temptation. Maybe you heard this message, and you're tempted to think to yourself, you have no idea what I've done. And you have no idea the sins that I've committed. Jesus knows. He knows. And he gave his life to pay for it. But this is America in 2017. (laughs) So it's far more likely that you might say, you know, I'm really not that bad of a person. (laughs) To you, I would say, The blood of Jesus covers even pride, hubris, and willful ignorance. Whichever side you're on, don't hear me wrong. I'm not downplaying our sin. Our sin 
is great. I cannot overstate how wicked and how desperate we are in our sin. The penalty of our sin is eternal damnation and there is nothing we can do to save ourselves from it. But Jesus, Jesus, the one who in dying defeated death, that Jesus is greater. The salvation that Jesus offers is greater than my sin. It's greater than your sin. It's greater than the sins of the entire world. God is calling. Don't neglect this great salvation. Let's pray.